Skin conditions can be notoriously challenging to treat and can cause considerable distress and discomfort to those affected. I'm Amy Skilton, and I believe that clear, healthy skin should be available to everyone. I'm a naturopath, herbalist, nutritionist, and qualified esthetician with 15 years of experience. And one of my areas of specialty is chronic skin disorders. Given the fundamental differences in presentation, etiology and treatments, you'd be forgiven for thinking common conditions such as eczema, psoriasis and acne are completely unique. However, there are some key underlying characteristics that unite chronic skin dysfunction. In August, I will be presenting a half-day seminar where you will learn practical guidelines to optimise skin health and I will be covering ingestible therapies, topical applications, dietary interventions, and how to reprogram the gastrointestinal system to address the underlying issues. Seats are selling quickly, so be sure to book early to avoid disappointment. You can reserve your seat at bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line all the way from sunny, question mark, Darwin is Richard Sager. Originally a chef and patissier, he completed his dietetics degree at Newcastle Uni and Masters of Science degree investigating health promotion within general practice. Richard is completing his doctorate and has been working in private practice in, with Darwin dietitians for the last 15 years. He's held academic positions with the Northern Territory Medical Program and Flinders University. He has a particular interest towards food intolerances and promoting capacity around nutrition. Richard is the director of Darwin Dietitians, the largest dietetic practice in the Territory. The practice services the private hospital, aged care facilities, and since 2013 has serviced 52 of the Northern Territory's remote and very remote communities. His current clinical focus is towards nutritional biochemistry and nutrigenomics, bridging this science into daily lifestyle applications. He has particular interest into the gut microbiome and autism. And Richard is the proud recipient of the 2016 Beamer Awards for Excellence in Nutrition and Dietetic Practice. And I warmly welcome you, Richard, to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you very much for that. <laughs> My pleasure. And congratulations, I've got to say, and well-deserved. You've done oh, a heck of a you. lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it's a great honour. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Now, mate, firstly, you've got to take me through, what is a patissier? <laughs> <laughs> what a weird word that is. <laughs> so uh, a patissier is someone who's done um, uh, some patisserie work. There are people that have done work that, uh, that can do baking and do uh, uh, cake shop work. Patisserie is more about a restaurant type of patisserie. So you go to those sort of fine restaurants and they've got these really um, quite uh, ornamental foods uh, or desserts. That's the sort of a patisserie work that I've done in the past. Gosh, that was a long time ago, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, first thing there, I think, is I'm coming to your place for dinner soon. But anyway, <laughs> now you've got an interesting career because you started as a chef and now you work as a dietitian. And I've got to say, often those two are a little bit at 
are at odds as to the health message that they impart. So tell me about this evolution. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I left school at 16, um, uh, then what, uh, to, to become a, a chef and apprentice, and I, I worked in Canberra and other parts of Australia. And uh, I think the science of food was always something that was very interesting to me, uh, how food would uh, come to form and, and create during the cooking or the manipulation process in the in the preparations of the food. And it, and, uh, it uh, then through my own uh, personal journey of nutrition, I started to learn a little bit more about what it was doing and then sort of thought, I want to go study more. And so, uh, hence, I, I think there is a, a continuum as a, a as a reversal. I think the, the science of food and the science particularly around patisserie work and cake decorating and, and it's all about temperature and ingredients are... Uh, it's very scientific, and um, so I've just gone and formalised that that that, um, that 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 industry into another area. So I've got to ask you: you, you said around Canberra, are you from Canberra? Yes, I did a lot of my schooling in Canberra, uh, and I did my original trade certificate in Canberra. That's right. Where did you go to college in Canberra? Oh dear. Okay, I'm from a uh, student of Belcon High School and then I went to Reed Tate College. Oh dear, gosh, we're digging up some old closets here, Andrew. I used to live in <laughs> McGregor. Oh gosh, okay. <laughs> we probably shared a rugby field. <laughs> I think you would have mown me down, son. You're a bigger <laughs> lad than I. So tell me tell me how this this food preparation evolved into wanting to do dietetics as a career, though? Because that's an interesting bridge. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. And the, the, the way we manipulate food in the kitchen, we manipulate it to uh, get people enjoying it. We look at all sort of uh, areas of senses from smell, uh, presentation, visual presentation and taste. And that's the science, and that's the science and making that work that way. Mm. And then um, when you start to see food uh, having a, a physiological role, um, there's a great deal more that you can learn. And so th- I think that's where I uh, started to want to understand how that was, uh, how that could happen and what was happening. And then, um, and so hence I started looking to uh, food science courses or food technology courses and then yeah. um, ended up wanting to get into a dietetics degree at Newcastle University. Hmm. So you've actually opened my, I should say, eyes, but um, you've, you've opened my mind to um, to how just how much work goes into being a chef. And, you, you know, like we learned about it with these kitchen shows on TV and, and what they sort of um, enter into, but the actual real passion for really um, maximising the, not just the visual, uh, sorry, not just the taste impact, but the visual and the smell and that that, that olfactory sort of sense is how it can help with... Um, <laughs> You're actually getting me salivating here about. <laughs> you, you're so right. I, I've got this perfect example in this this little French patisserie I worked in in in, uh, in the rocks in Sydney. Yeah. We were instructed to when we were allowed to bake the croissants, and it was just at sort of rush hour time where right. and the, the the owner would put the uh, fumes. Uh, the exhaust fumes from the uh, uh, the ovens onto the street, um, and uh, and the sales were intense. And so we, yeah, as there are so many things that drive yeah. uh, consumption of food, and and that olfactory, the smell, yeah, would be a very important thing. And you know what it's like when you walk past Bunnings on a Sunday afternoon; they're frying barbecue, onions, and sausages. That, <laughs> that drives a, a desire to eat. So there are lots of things we can do in the industry to cause people. 
to eat other than just instructions. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting area about how um, uh, what what stimulates people's want to eat. I, I think and it's it, I think it's really interesting that my wife and I will walk past there. I go, oh, yum, I could do, you know, let, let, smell those onions <laughs> like that. And my wife is just totally turned off by that smell. It's really interesting. <laughs> There's a gender aspect to this. <laughs> but the, and the other, I think, good point you make there, Andrew, is about uh, when we look at some of the public health nutrition stuff that's being done in the world, um, you know, there, there's lots of hard work being done by dietitians and public health nutritionists and about uh, informing what's appropriate eating for certain health conditions. But when we look at the Jamie Olivers, and uh, uh, um, they are doing a lot of work yeah. in changing people's food preferences about the whole area of, of upskilling. You know, and, uh, and this is something, probably one of the reasons why I left cooking altogether was some of the places I was working at, we were, um, we were buying tinned sauces and we were buying bread rolls in and even the, the food industry itself, itself is becoming uh, limited or or sort of monocultured in a way yeah. where we, we're, we're, we're losing diversity and we're losing uh, complexities in what we eat and uh, and what we're cooking. So, um, and hence we lose a lot of food skills in that process. <clears throat> and I think what we see on the TV is these, this, this whole new area of media about people trying to get that capacity back into their kitchen and get them starting to um, uh, have better skills in, in, in preparation. One of the challenges, I think, though, that, that we need to leap over is the aspect of time. Everybody's time poor, everybody's stressed. And yeah. I, I interviewed Pete Evans at the symposium. All right. Yeah, and he was saying, you know, like what I've prepared is these simple, delicious recipes. And I think... That's the mm. trick. Like Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver, one of the things that I love about that bloke is he just chucks it on a board. <laughs> There's none of this. And yet it's just gorgeous. You know, like it, it, yeah. it's it's no days of preparation. It's simple, no. good food. You know, Hugh Ferns, mm. Fernsley, Fernsley, Livingston, River Cottage, yep. Yep. things that he does. And you're just drooling at the mouth when, you know, when I'm looking at those sort of shows. There are many foods that don't need lots of manipulation and all that stuff I did in those crazy little restaurants years ago were, was exaggerated and unrealistic. And the stuff that we, we just need to do is just crack a lettuce, you know, cut a cucumber, open up a carrot, do sort of things that we can do. And it's about just building confidence again. And if it doesn't look like the photo in the picture, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can, it'll still taste good. Yeah. And, uh, and it's about having that confidence that you can do it. And I remember um, I went to a, a dietetic conference many years ago and um, I remember Rosemary Stanton saying once, uh, you know, we used to spend 30% of our time and 8% of our budget on food and now we're spending 8% of our Time and thirty percent of our budget on food. Yeah, we're we're relying the whole whole dynamic of the kitchen has changed. And you look at the the design of kitchens today in modern houses, and they're just sort of this this galley or a little bit of a bench with a a microwave and a and a area for a fridge. Mm. Where um, you know the kitchen should be the the centre of a house where everything. There's so much more happens around eating than just eating. Mm. Yeah, the the conversation, the, the social stuff, the dynamic and I hope that I hope that's that's that changes in the future where we now realise what that we've made mistakes in the way we uh, design a house. I guess. And indeed, you know, going back to your uh, patissiere, 
God, I hope I said that right. Um, <laughs> patissier. Um, you know, that sort of career, if you think about French cooking and indeed the Mediterranean diet, one mm. of the big, you know, we talk about the French paradox and I think one of the things we totally miss is the social interaction and settling settling down with a meal, the, the retreat from the daily stresses of life. Um, to, yeah. I think that was reflected in what we learned at the Biocidical Conference this year with yes. the... Uh, the whole stress stuff, you know, and we walk into a kitchen and it becomes a stressful situation already by what am I going to cook? And then so you enter a meal with stress, you stand up stressed, you're forcing the food down because you've got to get to the next basketball game or the kids' soccer training or the uh, or, or whatever. And the whole consumption of food becomes a highly stressful event. And there may be some learnt, adapted, uh, learnt, mechanism that when we eat we suddenly become stressed and that then has a big impact on our on our on our health and uh, i think we as was discussed is we've got to look at that decreasing every area in our life is decreasing stress and if we can improve our eating slow down enjoy ourselves then uh, many things will improve mm. and indeed look i've got to go back to the first time i met you or I didn't meet you back then I heard your name and that was when you were working in the area of bari- bariatric surgery or oh, you were at yeah, least yeah, yeah. you're at least assisting um, a bariatric surgeon can you take our listeners through that era of your career because that was in oh. Warrnambool correct <laughs> windy Warrnambool <many laughs> years ago yeah so um, yeah I, I just graduated as a dietitian then and um, was uh, working for Flinders University at their uh, a rural health area, uh, rural health department, and was doing some part-time work as a dietitian. And there was a bariatric surgeon who was just starting some bariatric stuff, and he was quite new to it, and and I was quite new to it. And we um uh, and we met, and he said, you know, look, I need a dietitian, and uh, can you help me out? And I, well, of course, agreed. And um, but I I started to get a little bit more involved in um, I guess integrative uh, nutrition or at least a biomedical approach to it, and mm-hmm. recognizing the need to improve the liver and liver health at a time where um, people were going under some you know, quite risky surgery mm. um, for weight management. And so uh, at that stage, we started using some supportive nutrients um, to help uh, the liver health out, and so things like uh, milk thistle, and I, th- I think we were using one of Biocidical's products at that stage. That's right, with, reduce excess. Yeah, I remember it. That's it. Yeah, reduce excess. Yep, and uh, uh, to to help bring that liver down. And and uh, I remember the guy, the surgeon, calling me and going, "Say, Richard, what are you doing? What's happening? These livers are just becoming really, really easy to manipulate." In the and of course, I didn't quite understand the process of what's going. I said, "Oh, that's great." Yeah, and um, <laughs> but it's, apparently, what was happening, we were decreasing the liver size. So much that the, the process of um, uh, um, uh, introducing the, the gastric band yep. was uh, so much more easy for him, and and he was he felt that what we were doing was improving the uh, decreasing the the, the the hospital stay by um, uh, in, by doing that quite significant intervention. Wow, uh, pre-surgery. Yeah. Wow, so that was really quite exciting, and that and I think for that for me at that stage, and yeah, you, know, you become new and you get you cut that sort of reinforcement that what you're doing is working and the literature supports it, then you go, oh, okay, yeah, so then you get more involved in that area. Yeah. So it was quite cool. I might point out for our listeners that that was at a time where the evidence-based uh, preparation called now called OptiFast, back then it was called ModiFast, mm. um, mm. uh, it, it, you couldn't, 
you couldn't acquire it. It was like for 18 months, it was off the shelves. And so bariatric surgeons were scrambling for something that they could use. You found Reduce Excess, which again, for our listeners, um, contains a, a fiber blend called PGX. But I, I think I also might point out for our lis- listeners that people think that um, before bariatric surgery, they're put on this sort of supplement, uh, weight meal replacement therapy um, as weight loss. And it's not the case. It's really to decrease the liver volume <clears throat> because they have to go in behind the liver. And if you've got <clears throat> a, an engorged, friable liver and it breaks, you've got a surgical emergency on your hand. <laughs> like it, it, Yeah. <laughs> the surgeons talk to me about that's like putting a knife through. It can be as easy as putting a knife through butter. Mm. Um, they are so tender, so sensitive, and it is so crucial. And, and you know, a lot of people do lose, you know, up to sort of 10 to 15 kilos pre-op, um, and so it's quite significant. But I think it, it's not about the... Um, the weight so much is that what are we doing to them metabolically? We're significant. Their liver is suddenly getting a chance to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and that's uh, supporting the beta oxidation pathway. So um, you know what we're doing is uh, allowing taking the stress away from the liver, and then it's just allowed to do uh, a, a normal process of, of of using fatty acids as a fuel source. Kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what? I, I was particularly interested when you just said that you that these patients had a shorter hospital stay because, indeed, that's one of the things I'm most proud about, some of the biocidicals research with um, the Alfred Hospital. Um, to oh, me, yeah. the, the end thing is it's a cost-saving to the healthcare system and a reduced stay in hospital, which, of course, knocks people off if you stay there too long. You want to get people out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hospitals aren't a nice place to stay in, I tell you. No. <laughs> so no. that that must have particular relevance for the work that you do up in the top end because there's a massive issue about the westernisation um, with Indigenous populations. Tell me about that sort of work. Yeah, well, it's, wow. I feel really blessed and privileged that I get to go to some of and my staff get to go to some of these communities that we, we do do. And mm. these are places that we'll never be able to get to again because they're just so far out. And um, But with that distance, there also become, you know, there is a benefit from the isolation from some aspects, but there is also really um, negative aspects to that isolation. And one mm. of it's about access to appropriate food <clears throat> or at least food that's supportive. Mm. Um uh, yeah, we, it's a it's a really challenging environment to work in. Um, in that, we can offer direction and we know what the best things are to do and uh, and and offer the uh, people that work live and work in remote areas. But what we say does not often transfer into uh, action because it's about this really complicated thing called access. Um, and I think that's a really interesting word when it comes to remote indigenous communities. So we think of access in a way of oh, can I get it off the shelf or, damn it, it's not there today and um, and hopefully it'll be there tomorrow. Mm. But access also means things about whether I can even open up the tin. Um, there's this concept called oh, health man. hardware. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and health hardware we know is uh, as a, like a washing machine, a uh, um, um, uh, toothbrush, uh, those sort of things that keep us sanit- healthy. But um, health hardware for some people is also known as a tin oven. Right. <laughs> so there's no point, wow. uh, no point giving us uh, a t- nice tin of uh, tuna where you can't open it anymore. And so it becomes a pointless advice to, for some people to say, have a tin of tuna or uh, open up a tin of soup because they can't, they can't access, access it. Yeah. 
care. And the other areas of access, so there's a health hardware issue, there is a, uh, an access to the actual product itself, but also access to it from a, a culturally appropriate area. So uh, it's a real, this is a really uh, funny yes. thing. When I first got into this community, this was a work in remote areas, I was told there are baked bean communities and there are spaghetti communities. I thought, what does that mean? How does that make sense? But it's quite true. There are communities that love baked beans and and the shops have got baked beans and there are communities that uh, only eat tinned spaghetti. And while I don't think tinned spaghetti is all that good of food, but it shows that um, if we were to get the store managers to sell baked beans in those communities that only eat spaghetti, then they wouldn't eat it. So there's also a cultural aspect that um, from non-traditional foods that, uh, people attending these, and then there is also a cultural stuff around uh, what um, Indigenous people like to eat from their own culture and their own areas. So uh, um, there is a very different type of food preference for people that live in the desert compared to those that live on the coast. Yeah. Um, and so then there is also this mix of diversity of what people choose to eat from where they're geographically located. So you, you spoke about access, and, and mm. one of my questions for you is. With our, um, with our quote unquote progress, um, that we would term in in in, in the as a Westerner, um, yeah. how does that affect the traditional access um, to a nomadic diet, which Australian Aboriginals would have eaten to be healthy, and they they were healthy for scores of thousands of years. So, yeah, yeah. how has that affected their diet? I need to preface that there, is, there are lots of people out there doing lots of good work and are much more informed around this than I am. But what my observations are that um, the access, uh, the providing access to a Western food um, may, for some communities, actually interfere with uh, um, accessing uh, more traditional food. Mm. But in, but unfortunately, for some locations, uh, particularly around the desert areas of Central Australia, they're losing uh, a supply. Uh, the, the wallabies are further away, so they're harder, yeah. harder to catch um, um, uh, in, the, in the coastal regions. Um, yeah, there is, we're getting a few more crocodiles. It's probably one of the things that's probably an issue. Ah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and so the, the the quantities of local food supply is becoming less. So the need for more westernised or uh, um, commercial foods is greater because mm. the the it's not about a um, a community that's just um, isn't prepared to go and catch. It's actually quite harder now to catch, and that's, right. I think that's no fault of anybody's, but just a. Um, uh, an environment that's getting overutilized. Yeah, yeah. Mm, so yeah, it's the, interesting stuff. It's the, more than I, I really feel that um, some of the nutritional issues in remote settings are, are not so much a nutritional issue. It's more of a um, a social issue. This is a, a social issue that um, we we're just not valuing or putting infrastructure into remote communities enough. To, for them, allow them to be sustainable or self-sustaining. No, I, I think one of the major issues is, is that the infrastructure that we do put in is Western. Mm. It's not True. indigenous based. It's to make us look good. It's to make us feel good. Yeah, um, uh, that, that would be that would that would, would hold yeah. well. That, that's that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so tell me about your interest in integrative medicine, nutritional biochemistry, because that's something that's you know it's normally frowned upon by you know. Uh, 
let's say, orthodox dietitians. But there seems to be this breakout. There seems to be this start of um, an acceptance. Yeah. Look, uh, I think as I've listened, and I'm uh, so many of your other uh, um, speakers on your on, on this show, a lot of us come to this from our own personal needs yeah. and uh, where traditional medicine isn't cutting it and we feel like we should know this stuff and we, I was trained in this, why isn't this working for me? And so then we go seeking elsewhere. And so uh, I'm the same generation, I guess, where my, uh, for, I had a daughter that was quite sick and traditional medicine wasn't helping, so we looked into some other areas, and a lot of it was about just dietary manipulation and introducing of you know, some good probiotics, as again, we've learned last two weekends ago yeah, yeah. at the Biocycles Conference. So um, there are, there, that's where it stemmed from, and, um, uh, and then uh, so it became, uh, so the hence, you, and you just start to read into it and get more involved, and and I don't think there's a lack of evidence around there. I, I think the evidence is still is quite strong. It's just what you're trained to look into as a dietitian. You're trained to um, uh, look at these journals, like um, I guess a, a cardiologist is trained to look at their journals and uh, um, a GP is trained to look at their journals. We, we Traditionally, dietitians are trained to look at certain journals and that's where we read our evidence and work from. And yeah. um, as you start to... Uh, are forced, to, in some cases, to read outside of those those areas. Then you become more exposed, and and you see that, uh, and you and the feedback you get from your patients is what drives you to keep going in this area. Richard, I I get that dietitians want and indeed must be evidence based as part of their registration, um, but why, when we're facing such a calamity of health issues? on a population basis from our previous dietary guidelines. Why is there such dogma to exploring new information, new options? Um, yeah, look, that's difficult. I, I find that uh, I, in some ways I'm asking the same question myself, so I'm not sure whether I can give you a, an accurate answer. Um, uh, other than to probably say that yeah, we are... Um, the Australian Dietary Guidelines is something that we've, we're taught throughout our whole training is the, is the point in which we reference from. Um, and, uh, and I, I think it, that we're just still, we're holding on too much to that bit of evidence. And maybe, well, I think you've said it yourself, Andrew, that we're, we're now, we're starting to experience and see that there is more to this than just the ADG, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, yeah. and that there are other areas in work. And I think it's, I think it's changing. I think it's evolving. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I think that that will continue to evolve and we'll start to be a bit more accepting and, and see the evidence. I mean, the other problem with this is, I guess, is when thinking about that now, um, the, it's really hard to generate evidence around nutrition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, uh, I remember you mentioned to me earlier uh, off this cast that we were talking about the the heart study, the Sydney heart study, and mm. how they looked at the uh, um, the uh, linoleic acid, and maybe that's not as good as we thought. The, or at least the polyunsaturated fats isn't as good because of the omega sixes, and it's so difficult to generate research around nutrition when we don't look at nutrients, we don't eat nutrients, we eat food yeah. and and that whole there are so many variables that um, interfere with a person's health and uh, when it comes to nutrition and lifestyle choices that it's hard to isolate. So um, 
generating evidence that allows us to feel comfortable about the advice that we're giving yeah. um, is often difficult to, to come by. I've, I've uh, explored this option um, that I'm going to mention with other um, podcasters, and that, and that is basically mm. um, that you can eat a paleo diet badly. You can eat a Mediterranean diet badly <laughs> if you, you know, bolt your food and don't exercise and eat it when you're stressed and don't have any social engagement. So I think it's more than diet. It's more than just the food. Oh. It's why we're eating, how we're eating. I had a very interesting podcast with Dr. Deanna Minnick where she basically put the spotlight on me. That was a bit bit challenging, but anyway... <laughs> <laughs> on on uh, you know the motives for eating, and it was like uh oh, um, but I think it's it's more than just the food we eat. It's why we're eating it, when we're eating it, um, how we're eating it, how we're eating it. You know, yeah. so so getting back to that work in the top end that you do, you know, when we've got this social isolation, which was fine when. Indigenous peoples were normally nomadic and could go wherever they pleased. And there were hundreds of tribes throughout Australia. And now it's sectioned off because there's property owned by, you know, grazers and things like that. And and so you get this restriction of of movement to, as you said before, the wallabies or the seafood or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. so therefore, we're making them, and you could say no fault of their own, our own, whatever. I guess that's progress. That that just is. Um, <laughs> well, it is. You know, everybody wants to live somewhere. So, um, but that basically forces into forces the indigenous populations into eating westernised food. So, but exactly. but is there any attempts to regain that traditional nomadic diet? Yeah, there is because we we're it's funny you sort of talk about that because like, there is a now a sort of a ism from a cosmetic point of view. There's a this sort of trend to eat bush food and 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 people are starting to commercialise right. that and 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 then you'll see bush tucker restaurants and stuff like that. So there is this acceptance that that's happening. But from the the places where it matters, there is and the and the public health nutritionists that work in these areas are really strong in trying to advocate for buying or eating bush tucker. Yeah. And that's often in the, in the graphics that they put across and in the literature they put across, let's look for bush tucker before we go to the store. Right. And what can we get, where do we get our, our iron from instead of uh, uh, getting it from the store? So there is a lot of work in this area of trying to recognise and re-engage communities with with local food sources and local food supplies. So uh, I think it's uh, um, it's happening and uh, it just takes a long time and for that sort of stuff to, to take residence. Because, I mean, you and I, I don't think we're any different really. If I've got to go and catch a barramundi from the foreshore of Darwin or I can go to the local fishmonger and grab one, I'm going to go there. And yeah. if they don't have any, then I may end up buying a bit of flake or a dodgy piece of fish or even some fish and chips. Yeah. So um, there's the reality is humans are quite a convenient space yes. and we're seeking all these convenience options and when things become too hard, we are forced to go and choose an alternative, and often that alternative is, is not the best one for us. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. You basically gave a stratification of the convenience, what you go down from the, from the more natural that you had to work for to the intermediate yeah. where you had to go and buy the fish to the fish and chips. It was just somebody else prepares it and makes it for you. Yeah, and I think that's we are all suffering that at all levels of society, and and I, I just don't think it's solely we can solely allocate it to the indigenous group. I think that's what explains what you were saying about Rosemary Stanton—that eighty, uh, sorry, eight percent mm. of um, of of budget 
for food versus 30% for give me? What was it? 38% for your, your money and 30% of your time. Yeah. And now time. it's uh, 30% of your money and 8% of your time. That's right. So we're becoming more convenience-driven. and. Mm. Yeah, so instead of mum sort of knocking off work or not even working, um, and she would start cooking dinner around three o'clock. Yeah. She's now rushing in with the kids in the in the car and and trying to grab something and throw it in the fry pan or the microwave and let's get them fed into bed within half an hour. Yeah. It's a, a very different way of eating. Tell me about your experiences being a white man. Um going or trying to help indigenous folk because there was a traditional mistrust of white man medicine. How do you get the message across? Well, I still think there there is that definite cultural divide between mm. um, the, the two cultural groups in communities. And I, I feel sometimes I should be going into these communities with a passport um, because I could be – I don't – sometimes I don't even feel like I'm living in Australia because it's such a uh, you know, foreign area for me um, coming from an urban setting. Mm. But um, they're an incredibly polite – group of people and, and and very caring and and they're very accepting of how naive and silly we are when it comes to indigenous culture and, uh, and I'm often very grateful for them helping me out in, in language and and terms and and, and how to produce you know, provide information so um, the my experience is that they've when I've gone to a remote community they've been uh, uh, really keen and willing to talk to me and listen to what I've got to say, yeah. um, and uh, but they're very. This, the cultural law is still quite strong when it comes to just simple things like a, a, a man offering a female advice. You know that that's right. some cultural stuff that you need to be very aware of. And yeah. and when it comes to women's health issues, it, you know you're probably best not doing. It. Even a man's probably not best even doing it because it it will be met with some shame or some awkwardness and it won't be received well. So there are some very simple cultural stuff that you need to be aware of yes. and uh, facilitate. Uh, so the information can be transferred and the directions can be offered. So um, I, I've, I, I love going out there because, uh, uh, again, because it's such a beautiful area of the world and um, the people are, are generally really, really keen to um, engage with you. What population group would take up most of your practice, though? So now at the moment, my, <laughs> uh, I have uh, probably don't do so much remote work as I'd like to. Uh -huh. um, and they, I give that to my staff and... Um, so I'm now doing a lot more sort of, I guess, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I work in areas of autism um, and uh, and uh, the methylation work. I'm doing a fair bit of work in nutrigenomics and methylation. Mm -hmm. And so that's now becoming a predominant part of my, my work at the moment. Yeah. Um, you mentioned autism, and that's a particularly challenging area of work, mm. um, particularly when you're dealing with both the kids and the parents. How do you manage that one? So yeah, look, it's um, you can. There's the theory and there's the practice. Yeah. And so, theoretically, we know how to help people around trying to clean up the diet and clean up the nutrition and um, and uh, and offer better foods. But the application to that in the, into the into somebody's household and somebody's family, when the child with with autism is not the only child in the family, and there's four others that've got their own needs, is really really difficult. And I think that's where I sort of, I guess my food cooking, my cooking skills comes into play yep. a little bit and give yep. them direction on how to make this sort of a bit more convenient, how to make 
a meal faster to make without having to uh, have that too much of the, that convenience factor there. Um, that's we've got to make it easier and, and quicker, uh, so it's not a burden and yeah. it doesn't make the child that you're trying whose diet you're trying to influence stand out too much from the rest of the family. And uh, yeah, for example, a simple thing like in some cases we try to get gluten and dairy out of their diet and right. see what effect that has for a child with autism. Yeah, um, and. And so you give an idea of how to make a, a lasagna, uh, a gluten and dairy-free lasagna, and that, that can be achieved in exactly the same way as if you were making it in a, in a, without that restriction. So I think giving not only the direction on what sort of diet you need to put, use, but also um, how to make it happen. And um, and I'm regular. I know you've interviewed these people before, but the Victor's Health website. Yes. Um, I'm a regular user of that. I love find that. that to be. Yeah, it's a great resource, isn't it? Yeah. It just makes it some real. It makes our job very easy in saying, okay, this is what we should need to do. This is how you do it, and here are some ideas on how to make that happen. And it so, doesn't have yeah. to look like an Anzac cookie. It, it, it can't. doesn't <laughs> look like an Anzac. Exactly. Yes, it can look like whatever you want to make it look like. So, so how do you get over the hurdle though of this? Um, dare I say the word addiction to gluten and or dairy with ADD, ASD? Autistic kids. Yeah, well, it, we generally first. I, I firmly first say it's either you're either going to go cold turkey or you try and wean it out. Yeah. And I think most parents that are at a point where they just want to give it a go will will do the cold turkey thing, and it's and then it's um, and so it's just stopped. So and and they uh, have to deal with sort of three or four days of serious tantrums. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Things like that. So um, one thing that we do is like I tell people to go and get the milk carton, for example, mm. and put uh, a non-dairy milk in that into the milk carton, like an almond milk or rice milk or whatever, yeah. uh, and put that into your normal milk carton. So at least that looks the same. There's a uh, the 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 stuff coming out of it is of a white colour, um, and it came out of the same milk that we did last week. And uh, so as far as the child's concerned, it's still dairy, and it, it shouldn't. It may just taste a little bit different, but it's still the normal stuff. So you you mimic or you mimic or you mock up um, normal eating patterns, but with yeah. alternative food sources, um, you manipulate the flavours and you've got to really put a lot of powerful flavours in there to, to help uh, the child deal with the changes. And, yeah. so, uh, and that could be um, adding, uh, you know, which is sometimes not a good thing, but salicylates and so lots of tomato to help, and tomato paste and, and help to really bring stimulatory flavours out for some children. Yeah. And for other children, you've really got to bland it out so mm. it isn't too stimulatory. The other thing you... We've found, I found successful, is recognizing texture. If the um, child uh, is a crunchy kid uh, and likes crunchy food and crunchy things, then you've got to make sure there's crunch there. Otherwise, it'll just be like yeah, the meat. That's interesting. Yeah, or if they're a soft palate, and they've got, then there's no point giving them sort of gluten-free cornflakes because it'll be, it'll be like him eating um, gravel, short, uh, sawdust, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or rocks. So, yeah. And there'll be they won't be able to tolerate that. So not only is it the taste and the flavours that need to be interfered with or influenced, but to adapt to maintain some similarities, but also textures, and including that in the recipes that you offer and direction you give. That's really, okay. really good advice. Wow. Like, mm. I mean, that's a particularly difficult uh, group of patients, and they're, mm. you know, they, they'll, they'll tell you <laughs> if you... <laughs> 
That kitchen floor gets a bit messy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, like I would imagine that the parents themselves must need a lot of encouragement to keep going, keep going, you know, when they're faced with these tantrums. And it must be just so draining for them. It is. And and I find I've got a... Okay, let's just take a break from it now. Uh, let's go back to some normality. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes relatives of them up, and you know, well-intentioned grandparents will offer the the choc top ice cream yeah. <laughs> or a Mars bar. <laughs> so they'll um, that'll interfere with the process, and, and it's just accepting that that's life. Yeah. And, you know, food is everywhere, and and some and it's, it's and there's sort of like maybe one step backwards, and we can. And, Go continue to move on forward. Mm. So it's about, um, yeah, it, it by changing the diet, you are trying to improve health out health outcomes and behaviour outcomes. But by by the diet being interfered or not followed routinely every day of the week, isn't fatal and, mm. it's, and it's something. And it's I guess it's got to, people have got to just appreciate that it's something that you can work with and it's a lifestyle change and it's accepting that you're not going to have that bread in the house anymore and you're and this is the type of milk everybody's going to have and it takes a while for people to, to accept that and and that to be introduced as a mainstream. Now you mentioned that a particular interest of yours is nutrigenomics and you know most naturopaths would be looking at supplements to help with methylation but as a dietitian what sort of foods do you use to help with this process in this group of you know autistic children or people who have methylation issues. Yeah, well, the things that we do is with particularly with methylation is just how can we mainly influence the folate access, and so where can we get folate from? And and you know we know that there are three types, mainly three types of folic uh, folate, and um, there's the folic, folinic, and the uh, and five methyl tetrahydrofolate. And so <clears throat> if there is a methylation issue, then we uh, um, and with the MTHFR variation, um, then we ask, help people instruct on where to minimise exposure from that that sort of artificial or um, uh, form of folate, mm. being the folic acid. Yep. And then we look at ways of getting more of the uh, other the, uh, other types of folate in their diet from the natural sources. I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah. that sort of dietary stuff we and how to protect that folate because we know when you cook it you can stuff it so <laughs> this is where i was going this is where i was going yeah, with it like so, how do you actually get that into people in appreciable amounts to affect a change mm, so you're mainly looking for raw versions and how do we and how to uh you know, how to make a recipe uh uh with you know broccoli that doesn't need to be cooked uh, or protecting the the blood or protecting the broccoli so it doesn't get overcooked mm-hmm. um using chickpeas chickpeas is a great sauce oh, yes. and so you don't need to boil chickpeas to the bilio. You can just soak them for a few days in the fridge and they'll become tender and you can blend them up and you've got a great hummus. So we don't need to be always cooking food to hold on to the nutrients there. And, and a little bit about, uh, we've probably heard it commercially about having a raw diet or mm. and, and picking up on aspects around that about trying to access folate um, from, from, from uh, raw vegetables. Um, the other area is about is looking sometimes have people have got better needs for methionine in their diet and how do we get methionine in and and you know one of the recipes I've got is you know making sure we've got mackerel in their diet or something you know, mackerel's got a really nice source of methionine and uh, and interesting the the cut on the sirloin steaks like using grass fed yep. meat and yep. using the um, uh, a sirloin cut that gives you a little bit more methionine and often people ah. that are 
under-methylating uh, tend to have a high vegetable intake in their diet and they're very healthy in that way, but they miss out on some of the essential nutrients yeah. like, such as methionine and we can use that as a dietary source um, as opposed to taking in acidenosine uh, and methionine or SAMI. But sometimes it's a bit of both, and we use a bit, uh, use a little bit of uh, supplementation for in SAMI, um, as well as giving a dietary source. and And often in my practice, I, I will ask them to take some uh, some SAMI uh, just to appreciate what that can do to help them with their mood or their thinking, mm-hmm. and um, and that way then they. Uh, can then say, oh, okay, that sounds good, and, and they give it a go, and they feel better, and then we get them to focus on more of those types of foods. So sometimes you can use nutrients as a catalyst to t- to influence dietary change. Richard, just before we wrap up, what sort of resources are there available for particularly if we concentrate on the nutrigenomics aspect um, yep. and that patient group of autism? What sort of resources are available for practitioners to um, to access? Yeah, well, I'm a. I've gone to nearly every, well, nearly every Mind conference. There's an organisation called Mind M I N W D, and they're not only for practitioners, but and they're for carers and family members and um, people dealing with um, ASD or spectrum issues and methylation issues and genetic issues, nutritional genetic issues. So they've got a, a, a often a really uh, they've got a really good conference uh, uh-huh. where they can go to and and listen to speakers and and they've got some really good resources on their website um, uh, and reading and books and they and they go through a process of vetting I guess uh, what's a good book and what's not something that's not so helpful and so they look for all I think all the really reputable reading and uh, they've got some recipe books on there as well so that's a I find them to be a really useful organisation. Yeah. So things like the Gaps um, Diet is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they give instruction on the GAPS diet and what that means and who would best benefit from that if uh, how it would be utilised. Right. Um, where you would potentially try a paleo diet, um, where you would try and potentially use a specific carbohydrate diet, um, and there's some direction around that. Um, there's, as I said earlier, there's the Victus website, the Victus Health website, and you'd go to your practitioner and ask for them for um, access to that based on what sort of nutritional diet you're trying to do with your child mm-hmm. or, or you for yourself. Um, there's the uh, ARI, um, American Research Inst- Autism Research Institute, and they've got some great speakers on their website of, uh, um, on dietary and lifestyle influences around this whole ASD area. So ah, there's some really good stuff around. Richard, I'd love to delve into more um, because you, I, I've got to say, you won the Beamer Award because of your <laughs> huge breadth of practice and outreach. And uh, you know, mm. I've got to, I've got to take my hat off to you. Like, you know, you really earned that award. Um, oh, thank you. So yeah, congratulations. Even for, I've got to say, from the runner-up, uh, Dr. Janet Schloss, she, you know, doffed her hat to you. She said, "Wow, that guy's done a lot." So, you know, you really <laughs> did win win that award, mate. Well done. Thank you. That's very nice. And thanks for taking us through today. You know, like important aspects of, I, I think, some really interesting things about access. That was really interesting for me. But, you know, how we we just don't think twice about opening a tin of food, but that not, might not be normal for somebody else. Look, uh, what I'm really interested in doing is, in my work, in my practice, is trying to um, improve capacity in whatever in nutritional requirements you've got. And uh, whether it's 
dealing with an inability to access the food because it's not available to you, or it's uh, there are some nutritional restrictions you've got in what your health needs are. Yeah. We're trying to make sure that you can meet your nutritional needs in that area. And that's one of the, I think, one of the really great things that I've got in my job is to make, help facilitate that happening. And that's something I really enjoy in what I do. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Bioceutical Seminar Series, The Gut Skin Axis. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook, or Twitter.